and your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. Just kids having fun. You all right? I'm always all right when I'm with you, Dundee. I think about that uh, scene in Crocodile Dundee every time that anyone mentions the word knife. And it seemed appropriate because today we are interviewing the James brand, which is a knife company. This was a great interview. I really, really enjoyed it. And I hope you do too. I uh, love you all. The early days, the first strategy for inventory position was totally determined by the health of my Nike bonus check. <laughs> so I, I would get a bonus check for Nike theoretically, you know, in, uh, in like the third quarter. And I would basically take that check and turn it into inventory. So Nike had a good year. James ordered a lot of products. And if Nike didn't have a good year, we didn't order a whole lot of product. Welcome, everybody, to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I work in early stage venture capital. And on this show, we're going to be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we have Ryan Coulter, founder of The James Brand. He teaches us about bootstrapping nights and weekends until you get your business off the ground. Uh, so today on the show, we have a very special guest. We have Ryan Coulter, the founder of The James Brand. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Thanks, Billy. I appreciate the offer. So what is The James Brand? Uh, the James Brand is a company that was started all the way back in 2011, um, sort of based on a couple of different insights. One, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest and kind of came up through action sports in the outdoor world. Uh, and, and through that world had always sort of carried a knife with me. It was a boy scout, um, you know, and it was just part of my life growing up in the Midwest. Um, and, and so feeling like, there wasn't really anything in that category that totally spoke to me as a, as a person, either from the brand side or from the product side. And so I, you know, my, my entire career has been sort of in the product design and lifestyle brand realm. And so I, in some ways I'm a bit of a one trick pony in, in that those are the only tools I know how to use to solve anything. Um, and so we kind of just sat down and made a project to see if you could actually uh, create something new in that space. Um, that market had sort of historically been broken up into a couple of, of big segments, sort of a classic hunting and fishing segment, and then uh, another sort of tactical segment. And I was really neither one of those things. And there's sort of always that assumption that if, if it doesn't, if there's a hole for me, there's probably a hole for other people. Um, and there clearly wasn't anybody kind of working in the lifestyle brand approach in the space. And so it was really, a, you know, it, it starts out as a question, which is like, hey, is that a real space? Is that a real opportunity? And if so, could we show up and try to fill it? Um, and, you know, these days, the only way to answer that question is to actually try it. 
make some stuff and, and put it in market and see what happens. So that, that's kind of what we did. So how did you go from, you know, I, what did you do before this? Um, you know, sort of immediately before this, uh, I was working for um, a design consultancy doing sort of innovation consulting. Um, and right before that, um, with a startup and then with Nike, but I was working, um, mostly on experience work and on, you know, product design and brand work. Uh, you know, I came out of Burton snowboards. I was the in, in charge of snowboard bindings at Burton snowboards. And then I was the creative director there. And, you know, I've spent most of my career kind of in a, uh, creative director role on, on product and brand. So, I know how to do a lot of that stuff, but I didn't know anything at all about uh, making knives and, you know, everyday carry tools or uh, that space at all. Right. So, so how did, kinda... so this is the piece I'm always curious about. So how, what was the, so you start with this premise. That's a great premise, right? It's, uh, you know, Hey, I think we can start to, you know, Swiss army knife was sort of a thing back in the day. Yeah. And there are these tactical, yeah. tactical knives that are really intimidating and big. Is there, you know, I think we might have something here. What, how do you go from that to, Hey, we're incorporating and we're going to start a business <laughs> and we've figured out how to make the thing. What were the steps you took? So the, the first thing that we did was to actually start drawing and we had some principles kind of in mind for the things we wanted to see if we could solve for it. You know, I think one of the biggest things in the space initially was that everything was just overbuilt and overdone. And so the first rule was just to simplify, like what, what can we take away from this? And, and what does the essence look like if you get rid of things, which is, uh, you know, in some ways Apple-esque in, in approach, you know, it's, it was a, a very much a reductionist and minimal, uh, take on things where I think the rest of the industry was going the other way. And like how many, you know, how many blood grooves can we add? How much camouflage can we use? So that was the first thing is to really ask the question, if we put pen to paper, what can we get rid of? How can we minimize fasteners? What's left? If you strip away all of those things that are kind of superfluous, what do we get? Um, so we did a lot of drawing and we did a lot of, uh, you know, making paper prototypes and, you know, working through the product side. And at the same time, you know, I think this project has always had two prongs that run in parallel, uh, was trying to figure out like, well, what is the, what's the positioning going to be like? How, how are you going to tell the story? Uh, who are we going to tell it to? And, and the idea of James, I mean, James in this context was sort of this made up mystical person that was kind of our muse. And so we decided that we would sort of tell the story through the lens of this, person James. And so we started, you know, literally writing down, uh, you know, ideas for this person. What, what is this person like to do? What are their values? Where would they be? And started to put some visuals together uh, for that. So we have these two parallel paths of like, okay, well, we're designing and sketching products over here and we're kind of sketching out uh, the principles and the general aesthetic uh, of the brand on the other side. And, you know, all that stuff sort of lands in its first iteration, just in a deck, in a, in a presentation um, that we didn't really use to pitch to anybody but ourselves. But it kind of starts to serve as that initial set of brand guidelines that, that become kind of a Bible for what you do next. And how, and how did you place your first order? What was that like? How do you find your supplier? How do you, you know, okay, you have some sketches, you have some talented people, it sounds like working with you. 
how do you go from that to from ideation to hey we have a physical product you know that process almost killed us um you know we're here in in portland oregon which is one of the sort of global knife industry capitals of the world so you know within a handful of miles from here, you'll have Leatherman and you'll have Benchmade, you know, a definite leader in the space, along with Columbia River Knife and Tool and Gerber and Kershaw and William Henry. And the list goes on and on. And so this place is really a, a knife industry town. And so the initial concept for this was that, hey, and, you know, keep in mind, this is sort of uh, against the backdrop of this sort of Portland maker movement um like hey we'll be able to leverage the knowledge base the resources the subcontractors of this industry and we're going to make all of this stuff right here in portland it'll be a great story um and so we took the drawings and basically started to shop them around to various folks who can help us out here in in the portland area but what we quickly learned is that almost 100% of the capacity in this area for what we were looking for was already absorbed by uh, the big guys. So even all the subcontractors were fully booked doing you know runs of thousands or tens of thousands of parts and things for other folks. And so there was nobody who was willing to spend time to just make you know 50 of these or try to help us make 100 of anything. And so we we tried that in Portland, I think for more than two years, um, and ended up really having to have a, a bit of a come to Jesus meeting where we're like we can either pivot around what our supply chain strategy is going to be, or we can kill this idea um, because it's not going to happen for us here in Portland, um, and so. We decided that we would do that, and that the, the you know in the the core essence of the of the idea was not predicated on making everything in Portland, although that would have been a nice to have for for the story. But it wasn't it wasn't mandatory. And so, working with somebody here in town who was kind of a mentor to us, who had come out of the knife industry, they connected us with some really good supply chain partners overseas who were being utilized by a lot of other folks in the knife biz and said, these are the folks you should go work with. They are willing to take some risks and take some chances. They're going to work with you. They want to be disruptive too. Uh, and they're willing to, to roll up their sleeves and actually try to make some things happen. Um, <clears throat> and so that began a relationship that you know, we still maintain today, but that, that supply chain, uh, part of the early days of the James Brown was, was very difficult and, and almost killed us because in that period of time, the entire thing was being funded out of my pocket. And so, you know, time, time is money. And so there wasn't uh, a lot of time to keep exploring. Uh, we either had to, you know, we had to get something in market or we had to sort of stop the project. Uh, and so we had to make this decision to pivot to a different supply chain model. Uh, and we got some really good guidance for how to do that. But uh, that was that was sort of the first near death experience for uh, for the idea. And who else was working with you at this time? Uh, at that point, my initial partner by the name of Mike Nelson, he was he was in there with me. And then 
uh, an industrial designer that I'd worked with for many years in different capacities named Sam Amos. Um, it was basically the three of us. And then uh, part of the model, you know, again, I come from the design world here in Portland. We had built a partnership with a local design consultancy called Cinco, um, where you know, I, I was friends with the owner and a lot of folks that worked there and basically worked out uh, an equity structure in exchange for uh, discounted rates on some hours and some resources. So it, it was, I think, a, a good move because it allowed us to get our hands on some, a wide variety of very professional resources, um, but without having to shell out a lot more cash. And it was sort of, you know, the, the model of like, if we win, you win. And uh, if we lose, no one's taken too much risk. So that was kind of the team in the early days. It was myself, um, Sam Amos mostly, and the folks that we were working with uh, at Cinco Design, uh, probably for a period of, a few years, that was the core team, and this was all you know, nights and weekends only. And is Cinco, um, is it physical design or is it brand design? They do uh, a lot of different things. And so they're sort of a, a full service um, agency here in town, but they do uh, product design. They do a lot of brand design. They were responsible for a lot of the brand and product design work for Nixon watches. And that was a company that we really admired in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, have borrowed liberally from, from their model. Um, so they, they do a lot of different things. And that was actually what made it appealing because some days you need a photographer and some days you might need a 3d print and some days you need someone who can help with copywriting. Some days you might need uh, some professional like photo retouching. And so, um, the ability to go sort of to one place to find those things and know that the level is going to be high is worth a lot. Um, and you know, I clearly have a design bias because that's my experience, but, um, it, it was, it was very convenient to be able to go to one place and know that the level of quality was going to be at the right level for us right out of the gate. So, okay. So you place your first order. Um, you know, and you bootstrap, you, you, you funded it personally, I imagine, as you said, and you, uh, you know, you order, you know, a hundred or 500 of these things, that's thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on the line. What, take me through that, take me through the first order and how it came out and, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So um, the early days, the, the first strategy for inventory position was totally determined by the health of my Nike bonus check. <laughs> so I, I would get a bonus check from Nike theoretically, you know, in uh, in like the third quarter, and I would basically take that check and turn it into inventory. So if Nike had a good year, James ordered a lot of products, and if Nike didn't have a good year, we didn't order a whole lot of product because I would literally just kind of flip it before it even sat in my account into uh, into inventory, and so. Um, we do that and we, we did that the first time and, you know, we, we wait for a while and then you actually get these samples that show up in your hand. And, and for me, I'd been working a lot on the digital side of Nike and I, I was an experienced director for Nike ID and I've been doing a lot of digital experience innovation. And I'd really missed getting physical stuff in your hand, like having a thing that you put on paper show up and actually having it have some heft and weight. And it was so rewarding to have that stuff show up. And, you know, I, you get that 
validation of like showing it to some other people and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? I'm like, Oh, that is beautiful. That is really cool. I'm not even a knife person, but I think that thing is really awesome as an object in its own right. So, uh, there's something really, I think satisfying in getting those first orders in and sort of seeing these things that were just concepts that became into full products. Uh, I always think is a real magic moment. And, you know, I think there's great value in when you get all those things right and you get a full sort of product experience that's uh, elevated like that. It, it really does impact people. Um, so to me, that was, it was a great moment. You know, if, if the supply chain issues were one of the first serious downers, then getting those initial samples and having them be good and show up like with beautiful packaging was one of the first highs, I think. Were they pretty close to what you had hoped for? They were pretty close. Yeah. I mean, the, our partners were, were really good and, uh, they were pretty close. Yeah. I think there's always things that were tweaking and, you know, clearly we're always doing a lot of work on QA and, and quality control, but they were, they were good. So uh, yeah, we've been through a few rounds at that point. And so, you know, that by the time you actually place the order, you're going to get, you, you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to get. So we were confident when we placed the order that we were going to get good stuff, but it truly is nice to have it, have it happen that way. So you get all these knives, you're still working at Nike. It sounds like and how do you decide, had you already set up sort of a website or a, a Kickstarter campaign or anything at that point to start to build the marketing machine? Or did you have to sort of build that later on? Well, we, at this point, we had this, you know, the, the, the other side of the product equation, we had this brand sort of presentation that I was you know, literally carrying around on a clipboard like it was the Bible because it covered a lot of what we wanted to say and how we wanted to look. Uh, and then we're, you know, as the, as we're getting close on the product side, we're like, oh, oh my gosh, we we need a site, we need to, we need ecom, we need to like tell the story. So um, we used some, you know, off the shelf ecom software and, and literally just kind of ripped the deck into a digital format and made it uh, into the website very quickly. Um, and so we didn't get super creative with it. We just, but we had, I think, good creative assets already that we sort of just plugged in. Um, and there was a bit of a there was an impetus to, to hurry here because um, in June, like first week of June every year, is the big knife show in Atlanta, Georgia, called the Blade Show. Uh, and so we had rented a, a table space down down there, and so it was going to be kind of our first. It was our first time to do anything in market. That was kind of our coming out party, which was June sixth, twenty fourteen, I think. Um, and so. We knew at that point that we were going to be set up on this table in, in Atlanta and people are going to want to go to the website. If we're there and we're talking about ourselves, they're going to want to be able to see if we're even real. So we're like, oh my gosh, we have to hurry and like get this website up because, you know, the Blade Show is in 10 days. Um, so we hurried to get it up so that we would have it live when we showed up at this trade show so we could at least fake people into believing we were real. And how to go? Uh, it was it was great. It was a humbling experience. I mean, you have all of those sort of first time in market uh, challenges and not knowing the show. And so the first issue was that the table was in the, the wrongest of places in the very back corner of the show, um, sort of surrounded by like more classic knife collectors. 
so everything back there was sort of older and, and for this collector market of like big, you know, Bowie knives and things. And here we are at this very minimal table with a black cover and an iPad kind of, you know, showing some imagery and these very minimal knives in cool packaging. And, and people were like, what are you doing here? Like, this is not, you're in the wrong place, basically. Um, but there was a lot of traffic and, and a lot of people scratched their heads. And, and I went to the show by myself and, you know, those kind of trade shows, you, you have to man your table the entire time. And, you know, I would take a bathroom break and get the guy at the table next to me to make sure no one stole my stuff. Uh, but you have to sit there a whole lot. Uh, and so, you know, the first day people wandered by and just kind of scratched their heads. They didn't really know what to think. But by the second day, people started uh, becoming interested and curious and wanted to kind of hear the story. Um, and then people started to buy some things. And you, the knives were expensive. They, you know, they were titanium. Uh, they were, I think, $275 each. And we only had one model at that time. Um, and we sold some. I can't remember how many we sold in that, that entire show, but probably like 10 to people. It's a show where you can sell, which is kind of a rarity. But people actually bought some. And so that was... A really great moment i mean those kind of like first dollars really do matter especially in the in the industry as an indicator of whether you're doing the right thing um but the other the, the other two things that happened that i think were, were noteworthy there was a woman on the last day who had walked by the booth um by the table a, a few times and she never said anything to me she always just picked the stuff up and kind of inspected it and on the last day she stopped and she said i've been coming to this show for a long time and I've walked this show over the last few days a lot. And you guys are doing the most interesting stuff in the entire show. You are. Keep it up. And I was just stunned because I still don't know uh, who the woman was, but she clearly worked in the business. And her read that we, you know, she, she really, I think, understood what we were trying to do and understood that we were trying to do something different in the space. Uh, and she was one of the first people to recognize it and kind of gave us that positive encouragement. So uh, I do, you know, I think that that one interaction with that one particular woman was really impactful because it made me feel like that we were on the right track, that we were doing something good. Yeah, that's really powerful. Just, you know, when you think nice things in general, I think you should say them. My wife always tells me that, too. <laughs> Um, and you never know what impact it's going to have after, you know, you were probably just exhausted a few days at a trade show. And then she says, you know, just what you need to hear for that extra juice to feel good about what you're doing. And then, you know, sends you on this trajectory or has some impact on your trajectory. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're, you're totally right. It was such a little thing. And it was such a uh, for her, it's like such a small gift to give. But I recount it even now because it was super important. I, I needed it. I was fried. Uh, and it really did make me feel like we might be able to do something here. She recognized it and she's speaking in some ways like for this business. Um, so she was in, in some ways a bit of an oracle for us. We're like, okay, people get it. Like, let's take the next step. So, so then you start selling and were you all direct to consumer at that time? Yeah, I think initially, I mean, the way, the way that this ended up working out is like during that so we, we turned the website on so that when we're at the Blade Show, people can go to the site and you know, we actually have something up, anything up. But while that, as soon as it turns live, and I still don't know how this happened, um, Uncrate, like the men's 
yeah, sort of gadget blog picks us up and you know scours a bunch of the images from the site and blasts them all over Uncrate. Never talk to them. I, I don't know where they get them, but while I'm at the show, we start to see like our first ecom orders happening. And I watch, I remember like watching it's kind of earlier days in our Instagram life. And, you know, I show up at the show and I think we've got like 50 followers who are, uh, you know, my family and friends and, right, right. friends, you know? <laughs> and all of a sudden I remember like looking at my Instagram account and it was like 200 and then it was like 500. And I was like, what's going on? I mean, some of this is coming from people I'm meeting at the blade show and that's cool, but, but not all of this. Yeah. I'm not meeting 500 <laughs> people over yeah. two days. Right. And then people are start emailing me saying like, Oh my gosh, I saw you guys on Uncrate. Like you guys are on Uncrate. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We didn't, I didn't talk to them. I don't know anything about that, but we show up and it really starts to kind of ignite the business and position us in kind of the way that I hoped for. And I think kind of in the way that the woman who inspired us uh, thought we might, you know, we showed up in this, this men's sort of high end, you know, accessories and fashion world and people recognized that it was cool and felt different and started to buy it. And so we ended up in that situation where, you know, we sold more than we had. And in those days we did a lot of the work ourselves. Like we were still, we were getting parts from our supply chain folks overseas, but we were still like assembling things by hand and doing sharpening and laser etching, trying to do a lot of work ourselves in Portland. Um, and so there was a period of time when I came back from that show, when I was completely like loaded down with orders and I would have to, you know, I would go to work and I would come home and then I would work till like three in the morning, um, you know, hand finishing all of these knives. And then I would put them in their packaging and I would take my dog and walk like the mile to the local post office and put them in the mail and then do that again and again. I did that for, I mean, there's a number of weeks that I had to do that to kind of get us caught up. Um, and at the time, you know, it's like running a marathon. I mean, like at the time it was because I was sleeping and I was feeling really overwhelmed, but in retrospect, those are some of the, some of the best days, some of the finest, you know, the, the funnest parts of the experience is where you, you start to feel this energy a little, even if it's small, like this little bit of pull from the market, real signals coming from people putting credit cards into the machine uh, and then having to go and actually do the supplying work, like do the work and kind of having this personal relationship with the customers where I'm actually, I'm interacting with them on Instagram. I'm doing the emails. I'll answer the phone. Uh, I'm hand addressing the labels. Um, so I always wanted to just stay really close to the market so I could figure out like how we were doing, you know, were you full time at that time? Uh, this is still a nights and weekends project. I was at that time I was working for Nike, uh, full time. So what caused would, uh, you to, what caused you to make the switch? You know, I, I think I have operated in this way for a long time, but I like to back myself into a corner so that I'm forced to make a decision. Um, and so I was really cognizant of like, Hey, don't leave Nike and the security and, and the good things that it provides you and your family until you have to don't go get a big office in an air on chair, like do what the business requires of you. And so after, you know, after doing 
both of these things for a long time as the business grew it, it finally got to the point where it was unsustainable for me for my family for the business and for nike for me to do both things i couldn't do all of it well and i've been doing all of it you know at, at a lower than optimal level for a while um and you know there's sort of that moment where it's like okay well now it's time to take the leap and i ended up having to make this my, my decision making framework was this like if i stay at nike and just keep going down that path and the james brand immediately fails and i've stopped working on it i've turned it over to other folks and the wheels come off and it just disappears I will always kick myself for not committing to it and, and at least trying to keep that from happening, you know, but uh, James and I are, are in some ways, you know, synonymous and I feel like it could really use my help, you know, so that wasn't a very tenable option. And then the other option of like, Hey, if I stay with Nike and, you know, sort of di divest myself and let other people run with the idea and the idea goes on this really awesome journey and becomes this like successful brand that seems like people enjoy working for, uh, I will also kick myself for not going on that ride. Right. Um, so there was really no other option. Uh, like I had to go do it at that point. And, um, you know, there are times in my life when I would have been far more uh, sort of liberal in my decision-making about that stuff because I was you know, single with low expenses. But this is a time where, you know, I've got two kids and a wife and, uh, scary to kind of leave the, the golden handcuff scenario of Nike and go do a startup for the second time. So I spent a long time working with my uh, Nike folks to try to do things to minimize the risk. So I gave them, I think, six months of notice that I would be doing this. And at this time in Nike, I was working for a group called Valiant Labs, whose job it was within the company to build little startups. So um I was building little companies inside Nike and I had this little company outside of Nike. And so my James brand experience was actually really helpful in the Nike context. And it was totally, you know, above board. And I think we talked about and presented around there. And so you know, I, I spoke to Hannah Jones, who was the chief sustainability officer at the time and now the president of Valiant Labs and uh, basically my boss at Nike and said, Hey, I'm going to leave to go do this full time. I have to, I, I have to chase it. I won't be able to sleep if I don't do that. Uh, but that's scary because it could fail and I don't mind failing for myself. I'll always get back up, but I don't want to put my family at risk. That's, that's a scary proposition to me. Um, and we basically had a, really, a handful of really good conversations that said, you know, don't worry about that. You're kind of you're welcome here at Nike. You know, we will do things to to bring you back in if you ever wanted to come back. You're highly valuable here. You've been a great part of the, the Nike sort of innovation family for a long time. And, you know, those aren't like promises written in stone, but just making me feel better about like what would actually happen in a world where the James brand suffers or things don't go well. Uh, and feeling like, hey, in reality, you're you're a competent fairly accomplished person you worked in a professional way for a long time you can get another job and keep going it's not like the world ends um i think tim ferris speaks about this a lot and i'm a, I'm a big tim ferris fan uh, a huge fan of his but going through this process of saying well what are you really scared about and, and you go well i'm scared about like the family living on the streets you know being part of the, the portland 
homelessness crisis suddenly. And, uh, but then you actually unpack, well, let's go through a scenario. That's like, let's say that James brand doesn't have any money in the account. And so you miss a paycheck. Well, what happens? Like, well, I've saved cash so that I can get by for a couple of years without having to worry. I've been very uh, conservative with my money so that I've got a, a fund in case things like that happen. So like, okay, cool. So you just do that for a period of time. And let's say that that went on for a long time and you ran out of cash. Then what would you do? It's like, well, I would need to get a job. And I'm like, okay, well, could you get a job? Well, sure. Could you get a job probably paying you more than the James brand pays you today? Of course. And so in you, when you really unpack like actually how it would happen, you can really help yourself minimize the risk because the actual, the fear is often irrational and, and the risks are real, but they can also be managed if you are smart about it. Uh, and that process was really helpful. And, you know, going through that with my family and saying like, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what the risk profile for all this looks like. And here's how we manage and mitigate that risk. Are you, are we good with this? I think the the last, you know, six minutes of this podcast is just a really good thought exercise for all entrepreneurs. First, what you said about, yeah, I was going to sort of just stay until I had to make a decision. Um, you know, the idea that you can build something successfully working nights and weekends, uh, you and you can sort of get it until almost until the wheels come off. And until it just doesn't make sense not to jump off the wagon or jump on the wagon, whichever way you're looking at it. <laughs> and then and then the last and then the last point you made, which is so great, which is think about what what is actually at risk. What are you what are you losing? Um, are you know, are you losing the opportunity to get another job somewhere else if you're a capable uh, employee? Probably not. You might even be actually building up your resume by trying something. Um, and, and so I think things like that, when you're thinking about the actual risk profile, people focus so much on the near-term risk, right? The day-to-day, oh, I'll be, then I, you know, then I get off, off the path and then I can't, you know, it could affect this and this and this. But I think the greater risk is often not doing the thing. Um, life is pretty short. And I think things like this are, if, if you're excited by something for a sustained period of time, uh, and you're still thinking about it. And, and e- in your case, you're even at the point where you're starting to make them, putting your real capital behind it, starting to sell them. Uh, I think it makes just a ton of sense to, you know, try things while you have maybe more of a, of a comfortable job. Uh, but then when, it's, when you start to see metrics that are showing, hey, this could, this could work, and it's something that you're thinking about 80% of your day while you're thinking about your job 20% of your day, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But that that's how I would be. Um, I think that's really exciting. And, and more entrepreneurs should think about it more fundamentally like that. You know, I think you make a good point. And, and I ended up thinking about this a lot uh, in, in doing this. You know, like I said before that I, I might have been more, um, you know, liberal in my decision making and my risk profile in a world before having kids. But the opposite is also true in that I want my kids to see me pursuing my dreams i want them to see that we can do that together like that's the lesson you have to teach them it's like hey without risk there is no reward and you know with some good planning and a support structure you can literally be or do anything you want to be it's a lot of work you have to really dig deep but 
you don't always have to take the the safe route. There are safe routes and sometimes they're great, but that you can do whatever you want to do. And so uh, I look forward to a, a day when my kids are older and we'll be able to reflect back on the early days when I was doing James and, you know, hopefully at that point, James is still going and I may or may not still be with it or maybe it's gone, but we'll still always talk about um, those days about, you know, the early days of, of founding a company and, and working on it nights and weekends and um, all of the fun experiences that it brings. And so it, it's an important lesson to actually live to sort of teach like, Hey, you can do anything. You can make it work. Uh, let me show you how, you know, let me show you the path that I took. Um, so it, I think it's been, it's, it's kind of taken a different context where it's like, sure, we, we could do what seems safe and conservative, but the more important lesson for, for kids is that self-confidence that you can do it and you can make it and you should follow whatever dreams you have. Um, so that was kind of it too. Like, I don't want them to feel like I was ever too afraid to take chances to, to yeah. try to actually do things. I, there's some Jim Carrey quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's, essentially it was, hey, I followed my dreams and it worked out. Um, my dad took the safe route and it didn't. And, you know, my dad had trouble keeping a job and he was trying to provide for me. And it, it, Jim Carrey has this great, I think it was on some late night show in the 90s. But it's this idea that that you know, the safe thing isn't necessarily the safe thing either. So you might as right. well, you might as well go for it. Exactly. Exactly. Safety is, uh, is often, uh, a misunderstood concept. And, you know, you, you do, like you said, you only live once. I, I really do believe you have to live fully and you have to, uh, you have to kind of do these things and, and chase them down no matter what your dreams are. Um, there was a, a pod, uh, an interview on NPR a few weeks ago with uh, a woman in a, sort of a, a larger female punk rock band from like the nineties. Maybe it was L seven. I can't really remember, but uh, they were talking about how she gets a, a lot of uh, grief from a lot of other parents because she's on the road all the time. Um, and she's not around as much as you know people think she might be. But she made sort of the same point that, that we were just talking about. And it's like, hey, the example that I'm setting is that mom can be a rock star. Mom's a rock star. Right. She's out there doing it. And like this is mom's dream. And the family supports mom in her dream and makes it work. And we will do that for you. And you guys can be anything you want to be. And I was like, man, what a what a stunning and insightful way to think about that. Instead of making it feel like she's being selfish She's doing what you have to do as a parent and live by example for what you want them to do. Uh, and you just know that her kids are going to go on to do cool things because they've always been shown that it was possible within the context of their life. They don't have to work in an office. They can go to the moon. Literally, they can do anything. And I was really uh, struck by that. And like, you, you have to live the example. You can't just say it. You know, you can't say jump in the net will, will appear. You have to actually jump. Uh, and, and make the net appear, you know, it's, it's the lip service is, is useless. You have to actually, uh, do it. Yeah. Well, um, I could, God, I could talk to you about the, more about the business all day, but I'll, I'll be respectful of your time here. I have a few, uh, fun ones that I like to ask at the end. And you actually answered a lot of my other questions throughout sort of, uh, your talking has been really helpful. So I appreciate it. Um, what's something on your bucket list? 
Um, I want to go to space. There we and, go. You know, it's it's funny because it, you know that, that has been that was a dream of mine since I was a little kid. I'm, I'm a pilot these days, which is kind of as close as I can I, I can get. And I've been a pilot forever, but I grew up um, about 20 minutes away from one of the Apollo and Mercury Gemini astronauts, Gus Grissom. I grew up in the Midwest, kind of in a poor farming community, and uh, was always inspired by this guy who also came from like the poor Midwest who literally went to space. And uh, that's just always been on my bucket list. And you go through this period of time where like as a kid, we're like, I'm going to make that happen. And I, you know, I went to Purdue, which is where a school that's graduated more astronauts than any other school, including Neil Armstrong and others, you know, kind of in an effort to chase that dream and, you know, things, it didn't happen. And so then the dream kind of goes away, but it's always kind of back there. But then you look at what's happening now with the entrepreneurs and your privatized spaceflight. It's within the realm for me today. You know, if I had if I had the money, if I liquidated everything, I could do it. So there's kind of these two intersecting curves of like, how long can I live and how do those prices, you know, continue to track downward? So I'm not giving up hope on that one. I would love for that to be a thing I do like on my 90th birthday, just do a little quick orbit around the earth, come back, close my eyes. Yeah, I think you I think I think you'll get the chance. I don't think that's too far removed from reality. I think you'll I don't yeah. And I think it'll be before you're ninety. I think so too. I mean that that stuff is happening so fast and uh I'm totally inspired by it. I, I think the the new space race I, I think is one of the best things to happen to human beings in a long time because I think some of those really big audacious goals are really good at trying to get people aligned on these big exploratory i think in you know meaningful missions and so um i've always thought it was good to kind of get our heads out of the sand you know and, and think about bigger things and you know I, I think elon musk's you know his point of view on mars and like building a colony on mars is that hey go to you go to mars and you're going to look around and realize you can live on mars but it's going to suck it's going to be really hard we should probably really take care of the planet we already have this is good to have as a backup, but it's going to teach you quickly to be more appreciative of, uh, of what we have here. So anyway, that's a bucket list item. It, and like if, you if you if you weren't doing uh, the James brand, what would you be doing? Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of other like things in my in my life. I was uh, I have the ratings to be a, a professional helicopter pilot. And I, I did work as a backcountry snowboarding guide in Canada for a long time. Uh, I would go back to doing, I would go back to doing something like that potentially. But the other thing that I, that I actually talk about a lot as kind of a post James brand thing is that uh, I want to teach. I want to teach kids at like a middle school or high school level, because I think they're, you know, I think it's just hard to um, overstate the importance of education, especially of science and, and you know, economics and big things these days. And I feel like having a lot of real world experience in a lot of these different areas would make me a good teacher. And, that, and I think it's a really good way to connect to a community at that local level and give back. You know, teaching is not something anyone does to make a lot of money. But I think, you know, as I get older and, and hopefully wiser, I, I do find this desire to A, connect with my community more and be to try to give back, you know, whatever tribal knowledge I've got from doing all of these various things, I want to try to share that with other folks. And, you know, like that, like the woman at the Blade Show, 
if you can just do the littlest thing to inspire uh, a kid, you can change their life. I mean, you know, I've seen it happen again and again. And so I think that's it'd be kind of a nice way to, you know, take summers off and, and give back and uh, really interact with kids in, in community in a positive way uh, and just to try to try to help out a little bit more. Yeah. If, 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 if an astronaut living, you know, a hundred miles from you growing up was enough influence for you to want to go to space, think about the influence of having someone teaching you ha- had built a big business. Um, I think that, you, yeah, same rules apply to a, much, yeah. to a much greater degree. It's, it's classic butterfly effect thinking, right? Like we're one little sidebar conversation that you had at lunch about a, a possibility can actually become a journey, an entire pathway for someone's life, you know? So uh, it's, it's a romantic idea, but it's one that uh, I think would be kind of a nice, uh, a nice change of pace at some point for me. La- uh, last one. So if you, if you had a 30 second or a 60 second Super Bowl ad and you had to choose anyone in the world to represent the James brand, who would you choose and why? Uh, the good, good question. Uh, potentially Roger Moore. Um, but James to us was always James Bond is really a lot of what James is to us. Um, so I'm trying to remember the name. I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the guy that has played James Bond. Uh, Dan- Daniel Craig. Yes. Yes. Daniel Craig is probably the person that I would have, uh, represent us right now. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of Craig as bond but this idea that you could move seamlessly between a casino you know a black tie affair flying a helicopter uh making love to a beautiful woman (laughs) working in an office like that kind of uh seamless graceful ability to move through various environments is a really important part of what we try to do like which is kind of the difference between being uh you know hunt fish focused or tactically focused it's like you 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 carry these things with you every day throughout all these different environments and they should have a role to play. The things you carry around with you have meaning. They're important. It's a curatorial exercise to decide what goes in your pockets. Um, and so that ability to move freely and with confidence through all of these really highly varied and potentially dangerous environments, that would be the shot. You know, if I could shoot anything, it would be. Well, um, it's James Bond representing the James Bond. I think that's a great, uh, f- that would be a great ad. Uh, I think it makes a ton of sense. I mean, yeah, the guy, the guy has it all, especially in those movies. How, yeah, uh, I, Ryan, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, this was a blast. And again, I could talk to you all day. This is um, really exciting. I appreciate all the insights and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's always fun and I think, you know, useful for me to uh, unpack this stuff and talk about it. And again, hopefully it can uh, help and inspire some others. So I'm, I'm, I always make the time to do this stuff because I think it's, uh, it's important for, for everyone to, uh, to hear. And it's good for me to, you know, kind of therapy for me to get it all out of my head. Yeah, I, well, that was really fun. Thank you. Um, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Okay, talk to you soon. Thank all you. Right, bye. Thank you everyone so much for listening. If you just can't get enough of the pod, please go to makingthebrand.co, sign up for our monthly newsletter. We will not spam your inbox. We will make sure that all of the newsletters are awesome. It only goes out once a month. Uh, Consumer insights, exclusive content, 
everything you want but don't get from the pod. Um, I really appreciate it. So if you're interested, please makingthebrand.co, add your email address. Uh, It really means a lot to me. So uh, I appreciate it. And as always, I appreciate you listening. Love you all.